Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. Wild start to the year. All right. Well, happy Friday, everyone. Rich Swabinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here once again with the rundown with Robin Rich, where we take you into the weekend by rolling through all the latest and greatest with the mortgage industry. Uh, this week, my normal, normally uh, esteemed colleague and co-host, Rob Crisman, unavoidably detained, had a family commitment, so uh, went to the well to procure an all-star team of correspondents uh, on all, all the most critical issues uh, going on right now in housing and housing finance, and I'll start out by introducing them and uh, really pleased to be joined today by a gentleman that spoke in person as one of our keynote speakers at TMC Miami uh, about six weeks ago, the president and CEO of the National Association of Home Builders, Jerry Howard. Jerry, great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Really looking forward to getting your perspective on uh, everything going on right now with the Home Building Association and industry housing more broadly and uh Looking forward to getting into that discussion. Uh, and then a couple TMC network favorites, the president of Nationwide Mortgage Bankers out of New York, but a fellow Clevelander, Jody Hall. Jody, great to see Hi. you again. Hi, thanks for having me. You got to show everybody your shirt, your hoodie. Oh, for sure. Cleveland's strong, but you notice I won't change. Like, I can't buy the new gear. Not yet. <laughs> And with the Federal Reserve this week, uh, you know, coming out and uh, speaking at the end of their two-day policy meeting and ultimately sending the financial markets into complete tumult, which I think they actually were trying to do the exact opposite. Uh, We wanted to bring in one of our cap markets, uh, subject matter experts, the Executive Vice President of Capital Markets for Princeton Mortgage, Victoria DeLuce. Vic, great to see you. Great to see you guys. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, let's get into it. And as always, any comments, questions, thoughts, uh, strive for interactivity with the show, please feel free to pump them into the chat or the Q&A and we will incorporate them into the show. Jody, I'm going to start with you because there was just a huge acquisition in the mortgage industry this week. The I think the biggest vendor to vendor acquisition yep. ever yep. in the mortgage industry, $13.1 billion. The ICE machine uh, uh, acquires or, or announces an agreement to acquire Black Knight Financial Services. Your just initial thoughts on the news this week? I'm not really sure how it goes through, but I mean, I think everything that I might have tried to learn when I was in college is that that's a monopoly, maybe. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure um, what will happen if it will it will. Uh, uh, come to fruition if it does. Um, I actually, for what we're trying to accomplish, see it as an advantage um, because I think that there are some uh, diehard uh, Encompass users that aren't going to want to have Empower uh, as their loan origination system. There's some Empower users that are on Empower because they don't want to use Encompass. And um, I know that the initial uh, 
initial conversation is, is that they will run the two companies in parallel from the LOS perspective, that they will run that they will run both companies. But from a long-term perspective, how long can you do that and actually be profitable? Um, so I think that the you know, inevitable is you get a blended product. Um, I do find it interesting that um, they think one thinks that the other has better technology, and I think both of their technology is old. Um, so I, uh, you know, I think it is, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what comes to fruition, but I do think that there's going to be a lot of empower users who are going to be, want to get out. I also think there's a lot of encompass users who want to get out. Um, the part is the pieces that come along with, um, that come along with, and, um, with Black Knight and being that they acquired, um, Optimal Blue. Um, so now, ICE has um, EPPS and um, Optimal, Optimal Blue for pricing engine perspective. And I think that the pieces that go along with that, it's going to be interesting to see if you still have the same uh, flexibility that we have had in the past when you are a Encompass user being able to do integrations, do they stop limiting, allowing uh, integrations? They have both platforms. So um, I think that it is going, it, I don't think anything's going to happen immediately, but I think, you know, two, three years from now that things are going to look completely different on the ICE front. Um, and I don't think that they're going to continue to run two uh, systems uh, separately, but uh, I guess I would have liked to have been part of that. You know, I wasn't, I didn't own. You never sold a piece. company for 13 billion before? <laughs> no. No, nor even 13 million. <laughs> Jody, more, power, more power to them. I'm sorry, Jody, to your, no, I was going to say, Jody, to your point about running two companies um, simultaneously, I think that we already have uh, a look yeah. into the future when Black Knight acquired uh, Optimal Blue, but also acquired Compass Analytics. Mm -hmm. And they ran those two companies side by side for quite a while. And now they are actually in the process of merging them both. And they're coming out with a new product where they've leveraged both technologies. Um, so, so we'll see how great that is um, when, when that comes out. And I think that that will be a telltale sign of how they're probably going to handle the LOS and the, um, and the pricing engines as well. Right. Certainly, if it goes through uh, the end of a successful run for Black Knight, the biggest uh, loan servicing software provider in the mortgage industry, and the end of a run where they, they've had this strategy of growth by acquisition and acquired some well-regarded companies, Compass Analytics and Optimal Blue and Surefire and like five others, uh, and then just sold uh, to ICE at the equivalent of about $85, $86 a share. Their stock was trading at like $71, $72 a share. So if it goes through, a success story for Black Knight. But to Jody's point, uh, a long road to hoe here. By the admission of both companies, this is going to be an acquisition that takes a long time to go through. I think I read publicly uh, a year is the best case kind of scenario to get this thing done. And certainly, to face some antitrust scrutiny, uh, just given uh, you know Black Knight's market share on the service side, servicing side, and the two organizations combined market share on the loan origination side. But news that uh, got everybody's attention in the industry and uh, directly impacts a lot of people. Because Jody, to your point, there's a lot of lenders right now either on Encompass that we're pondering going to Empower, or you know that are Encompass users that maybe didn't want to be involved with Black Knight. So it'd be interesting to see all the chips fall here. Yep, for sure. 
Uh, moving on, the other big news of the week, the Federal Reserve uh, had their latest policy meeting this week. And uh, after, at the conclusion of that meeting on Wednesday, I did what most expected, raising rates 50 basis points. And then uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman in his press conference afterwards, was made really positive comments. Um, you know, it was something along the lines of he felt like there was a very good chance of a soft landing after really rhetoric that was very opposite. The last couple of meetings, almost trying to prepare Americans for what could be a really tough road to hoe. Since then, the stock market has completely collapsed. Mortgage rates have shot through the roof. So I think he was trying to calm the markets with those statements. And then Wednesday afternoon, it seemed like that was working. Stocks rallied, mortgage rates came down and mortgage bonds rallied. And then Thursday, Friday, just all hell broke loose. Stocks, bonds just trashed historically. Stocks and bonds trade opposite of one another. The whole, this whole weird pandemic cycle, we've seen them in a lot of cases, including this week, trading identically. Vic, you got to be ready for a cocktail at the end of this week. I feel like I'm ready for a cocktail after the last two years because I feel like I've experienced three once-in-a-lifetime events in the last two years. So um, I feel like this is just icing on the cake. Um, but the, the one thing that I will say is I think that one of the things that we needed as a market was a little bit more certainty. Over the last few months, especially since the beginning of um, the, the Russian-Ukraine war, and we have Fed presidents coming out, you know, one more hawkish than the other. And, you know, the market's getting driven up because there's so much uncertainty and we don't know what we weren't super clear on where the Fed was going and how fast they were going to raise rates. And I think that uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, Jerome Powell did us a huge service by taking that 75 basis points off the table, at least for the next two meetings and, and creating a little bit more certainty in the market. Um, but again, we we still have a few things going on. We still got you know China in COVID lockdown, which is going to continue to um, lend to supply chain issues, um, which could lend to inflation. And I know that Jerome Powell mentioned that they were going to keep a close eye on that as well. Um, but I think that I think there's still a little bit of uncertainty in the market, and um, and we'll just we'll see how it goes. I. I just took a look at some stats over the last three months. We've lost about five points in the bond market, in the UMBS market, um, which has contributed to about a two-point increase in interest rates. And so when you look at the, the Freddie Mac weekly survey, it's gone up about two points over the last three months. And But that survey, it's a little bit delayed, but also it pulls in all production channels. So we're talking about wholesale, retail, consumer direct, um, and it brings in those average rates. I know a lot of people on this call um, are IMBs, right? IMBs that have retail loan officers that are belly to belly to realtor with realtors. And their rates tend to be a little bit higher because they get paid a little bit more to bring in the business. Um, and, and what we've seen with rates for them, like right now, the average par rate for, in, for a typical retail loan officer is somewhere between 5.75 and 6%. It's crazy. Like, when did you think we were going to see a 6% interest rate? Considering just three months ago, it was about three and a half to 3.75. Most of the economist projections were like, you know, the slow ascent to four and a half percent this year. <laughs> like, well, right, in, in, in the NBA, yeah, the NBA is actually still projecting that we're going to end the year just below 5%. I mean, a lot of experts are still saying that they... They believe that we are close to seeing inflation peak, 
Um, I'm not exactly sure how they're coming up with that, but uh, the articles that I read after the Fed announcement, um, Charles Schwab and a few others were coming out saying that they pretty much guaranteed another 50 basis point rate hike, but we may not see as many rate hikes if we see inflation start to peak. We'll we'll see how that goes, but um, you know, try telling the loan officer with a six percent par rate who has three borrowers going in on the same deal and none of them win. That's my background, cap markets guy. And I just, I remember these climates like this, I would just dread every time my phone rang and, uh, you know, it was, it's a tough, it's a tough climate lock extensions. It, it just all that it is fighting the wind deals and it's, man, it's tough. And uh, we'll see what happens. I think, I think rates are going to be incredibly volatile this year throughout the course of the year and the value of a good capital markets professional like yourself, Vic, uh, that's, you know, I always make the comparison on here. It's like a left tackle for a football team, you know, so uh, protect your blind side. Jerry, uh, moving on to you, I want to commend you and your organization uh, recently delivered a letter to the president uh, signed by over 10,000 members of your organization, National Association of Home Builders, uh, just really calling on the organization to take actions to what at this point is a crisis. I, you know, I've been calling it that for a while. It, 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 we've got a serious housing supply crisis in America. And uh, listening to you speak in Miami to our members uh, six weeks ago or so, it really, really opened my eyes to some of the headwinds that the home builders face in America. And uh, yeah, I would just love you to open by giving your general thoughts on the issue as it stands. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that what were headwinds have now become uh, the perfect storm. Uh, we're looking right into the teeth of it. You, you have, as you have just discussed, uh, increasing interest rates, uh, both for the consumer and for the builder for AD&C loans. Uh, at the same time, uh, construction costs uh, have gone up 21% year over year. Uh, lumber prices have gone from about 385 dollars per thousand board foot, over six hundred dollars. Uh, it went up to fifteen hundred dollars. It's come back down and now to about six hundred and ninety or seven hundred thousand or seven hundred dollars per thousand board feet. But lumber prices are volatile, even when you can even get it. So I don't know how. By the way, they're saying you can see the end of inflation when the supply chain is so messed up that costs are just escalating on at every step of the supply chain, how can you say inflation is, is gonna end? Um, I, I, I had the privilege yesterday of speaking in New York City to uh, the board of LG Electronics, one of the biggest producers of home appliances in the world, uh, and talking to them about shipping their product from overseas to here and the increased costs uh, of, of renting a shipping container, more than 300% increase in the cost of renting a shipping container. And then when it gets to the port of Los Angeles, instead of taking three days to unload a container, it's taken 40 days. All that means extra costs. All that means inflated prices. So I don't know where you were seeing it. That's what the impetus was for us to send a letter to the administration. If inflation is going to remain high, um, if therefore borrowing costs are going to be high, the only way to keep the housing sector functional is to reduce costs somewhere else, reduce regulations, to cut a deal with Canada, which we should be doing anyway, uh, to ensure a lumber supply and, and, and make it easier for builders to build. Because right now, um, you know, you hear the realtors say, we just need more homes if the builders will build more. 
Well, we simply can't afford to build more. We can't build a house uh, that a first-time home buyer can afford to buy. And they're the ones, that's the area where we have the largest shortage in supply is in the first-time home buyer market. We can't make it work. If the administration doesn't heed our warning, um, I, I don't see how we avoid a housing recession. We've gone up from saying maybe a 10% chance of a housing reception, recession at the beginning of this year. Our economist is now saying it's a, it's a, it's a one in 3% chance of a housing recession. Well, I, one of my favorite things is follow the money. And the way the stock market has performed these last two days after Chairman Powell coming out and really doing everything he could to assuage the markets really makes me nervous for my stocks, but just for the American economy in general. Um, Jerry, you're, we, we talk about it all the time on this show that, it, it, you know, I know some home builders and it's just, it's impossible for home builders to build like a $250,000 home and make money. Matter of fact, they probably would lose money building a home that size, right? And I guess that's part A to the question. And part B would be from your perspective, um, is there something that Congress could do to help incent, inspire your members to be able to build those smaller homes that the country so badly needs? Well, right right now, the average uh, home price in America is like $385,000. Uh, it is very, very difficult. In some parts of the country, it's impossible to build a house for that price. So we're at a point where the average American can't afford the average priced home. That's a bad place to be. Uh, what can Congress do? Well, right now, it doesn't appear that Congress has the political will to do anything, unfortunately. Uh, they are so uh, they're so polarized up there that uh, it's. It, I just don't see any help coming from there. The administration can do a lot. Um, this administration has reinstated almost all of the regulations that President Trump vacated. And if they would at least look at some of them and take them off of the table, you can help reduce costs. 25% uh, of the cost of building a new home is in regulatory compliance nationwide. In California, in San Diego County, 55% of the cost of building a home is regulatory compliance. The administration can, can reduce federal regulations and can use uh, HUD money as a carrot uh, to reduce uh, state and local regulations and get state and local governments uh, to ease back. That's, that's number one. Number two, fix the supply chain. When I talk to my counterparts at uh, the American Trucking Association or the Railroad Association, the same type of regulatory burden that's been placed on builders has been placed on the transportation uh, industry as well. That needs to be reviewed and reviewed quickly. And lastly, we need to get people working back on the docks. We need to get our longshoremen and everybody to come back to work uh, and, and unload these ships, some of which have been sitting there for over a month at a time before they even get fully docked. Jody, uh, spent your lifetime in the industry, you've worked for big national banks, you were the COO of one of the, what is now one of the biggest mortgage companies in America, you're president of a pretty big independent mortgage bank right now, you live in Northeast Ohio by me, where you could still, in theory, you should still be able to get an affordable home. Uh, your company's based out of New York, a higher price state. I would just to welcome your perspective. My fear is what is happening now because of all the things that are contributing to uh, home values that continue to go up and rents now, landlords, and a lot of these are institutional investors that 
you know, there's no sympathy factor there. They want to make money. Um, rents are going up like crazy. Uh, you know, we both know people that you got to live somewhere. And this is really my fear that if things keep going in this direction, that as soon as late this year or this time next year, it's going to be a real problem for just anybody that just needs somewhere to live. Like the young couple that gets out of college that, you know, entry level jobs, make a 40, 50 grand a year or the single mom, like your thoughts on the matter in general and how you see things playing out. Well, I learned a new term uh, this month, past month about doom surfing, where we as human beings, we like look at the tragedy stuff, like we're on social media, we're looking at the bad, we're looking at the bad. I want to, this sounds like a doom surfing uh, call today. Like it's a great opportunity for people to jump on. And I usually can turn every single thing into a positive, but I really am, am at a loss. And that's why I can't, I figured you'd have a ray of light for us here. No, (laughs) I, you know, I, I really see, you know, everything that is happening right now, it's scary. I mean, I can't imagine being a first time home buyer who doesn't currently own a home that has historically high equity to be able to get into another home. Um, I, you know, I personally am trying to sell, was, was going to sell my house, but then I started looking at rent and what that meant, you know, in downtown Cleveland. And I'm like, well, that makes no sense. It makes more sense for me to hang on to my house. And because at least I'm paying towards something where I have, you know, am, am paying towards the principle of, of my house. So keep two homes as opposed to have, you know, a place in Cleveland and a place, a second home. So I think right now it's like with increased home prices, increased rates, and in many cases, because investors are scared of the higher interest rates, you can't even get to a par rate. So you're telling people that don't typically have the ability to have a large down payment that they also have to pay three points or the programs that are intended to help them for down payment assistance. Like it doesn't make any sense because all the money is being sucked up in discount points. And you also are with increased cost to originate. All of those costs are going to the consumer, right? It's like, and so it is, it, it, it's like, I don't know. And I, you know, Victoria said the last two years in the mortgage industry, like you couldn't have, you couldn't have told me that we would be, this is what we would be talking about three years ago. You couldn't have told me that we were going to have to deal with a pandemic. We were going to have to deal with another housing crisis. It's just of a different variety. Um, and I don't know where the end is for the um, consumer and especially creating affordable housing for individuals. Like I just, you know, it's sometimes you get to a point where it's like, it it feels as though it's unsurmountable and it's going to take a whole lot more smart people than, than me um, to try to fix that where I can, as a, as a uh, mortgage lender, where the only um, place that can really provide impact is you know, the willingness to share in losses, you know, with our branches to be able to keep rates as low as humanly possible, um, to look for ways to be more efficient, to drive down the cost to create a mortgage loan. I think I saw it was like over nine, $9,000 is what the average cost is to yep. um, for a loan. I mean, so 
the only things that we can do are, you know, the things are within our control and it is, uh, there's a lot of moving parts. And I, you know, I heard that we're, it's going to take a whole lot of luck and precision from the fed to keep us out of a recession. I don't, I don't know if we have a, a solution to keep us out of a recession. So, so there's my uh, doom and gloom, happy version of what's going on in the market. I'm going to add a little bit of a, a little bit of a ray of sunshine to this. Um, and I wanted to go back to Jerry's comment about how it's really going to take state and local governments to help on the for- affordable housing front. And so I also happen to be the president of the Michigan Mortgage Lenders Association for 2022 this year. And we're working pretty closely with the, the administration um, here in Michigan to help on that front. And uh, Governor Whitmer actually just came out with a proposal in order to help um, to help in that fight and partnering with Mishta here. So I think if we can continue to get other state and local governments involved in that, I think uh, we can start to solve it on a local level and then you know work with uh, our friends like Jerry on the national level to, to help get this problem solved. This is The Rundown with Robin Rich. I'm Rich Swarbinski of the Mortgage Collaborative. This week, joined by the president and CEO of the National Association of Home Builders, Jerry Howard, president of Nationwide Mortgage Bankers, Jody Hall, and the executive vice president, Capital Markets for Princeton Mortgage, Victoria DeLuce. Jerry, a question in the chat about 3D printed homes. You're starting to see a little bit of chatter about this. Is this anything that is any realistic part of the solution in the short or even medium term? Uh you know, it's it's great to see the technology improving, not only in 3D printed homes, but in other elements of home building. But it's going to take time before the market fully accepts all that. Um, it, you know, you, you got to remember that uh, the basic home is still being built largely the same way it was when the Plymouth, uh, the, the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth Rock. Um, the, the nail gun is a uh, a revolutionary um, tool to some uh, people still. So it, it's going to take a while. Uh, but having said that, um, it is great to see, uh, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention and we need to find something. Uh, and so we're starting to see more robotics. We're starting to see 3D uh, printed housing. Uh, it'll come, but it's not going to help us in the near term. No, I don't see that. Something that may be able to help. I heard you mention at our conference, just our trade deal with Canada, tariffs on timber that we import from Canada, and that being a big part of why lumber prices are so expensive in America. If you could you know, explain that in, in somewhat simple terms, what, what the heck's going on with that? Sure. We, we traditionally uh, have relied on Canada for 30% of uh, our softwood lumber, softwood lumber being the lumber you use to frame a house. Um, now, first of all, we could domestically produce enough lumber, um, but radical environmentalists have driven our policy so far to the left that national forests are treated the same as national parks. National forests are not national parks. National parks are treasures that should never be touched. No one disagrees with that. National forests are established to be renewable resources, but right now there is no harvesting in our national forests. And by the way, that's not good for the forests either. Uh, I learned at a forestry summit uh, a couple of years back um, that a healthy forest, forests in, in, in Germany and Sweden um, have 100 trees per acre. Our national forests right now have 300 trees per acre, uh, which it means that there is disease, there is down timber in the forest. They become tinderboxes. 
Oh, and by the way, we're starting to have more and more forest fires every summer. That's a significant part of the reason. So first, we could clean up our own forests, do ourselves an environmental favor, and produce our own lumber. But that seems to be off the table right now. So then we need to go back and get this timber from Canada. We've always had a trade agreement with, with Canada on softwood lumber importation. It's been, it's been expired now for four or five years. And it seems like the American government is very reluctant to come to the table uh, because the domestic producers are, uh, are, are really uh, controlling uh, our policy in that front. And, and the domestic producers have a good thing going right now. Jody, help housing. It's becoming such a main street issue. You touched on it well in your, your last comments. How, how big of an issue do you see housing related items being in the upcoming midterm elections? Any thoughts on things that could begun, begin to become talking points there? Uh, your thoughts? I think that if someone can, you know, their magic eight ball lands a great idea to help with that with housing, I definitely think that we would all jump on the bandwagon regardless of what what the the party is. But I don't think that I really don't think that there are any candidates that have a solution or I should say the willingness to put their neck on the line for what a solution could be. You know, so disincentivizing um, investors to buy up affordable housing, um, you know, provide uh, providing ways to get first time home buyers into homes, uh, opening up. You know, we, we have a large issue with the uh, area to build. Right. So the state our local regulators have to have the willingness, which won't be popular to allow, you know, higher than normal uh, buildings for, um, or just to open up land to allow for a building in areas to be able to grow. So I don't think that, um, I think that in a, it, it typically if it's a no-win solution, what do politicians do? They leave it alone. So I think that most most politicians are going to steer clear of it um, unless they have some big, hairy, audacious idea that is going to solve uh, supply chain issues. But, you know, when, when you talk about being a New York company, it's built on like there is you can't on Long Island. It's like there are houses you can touch them everywhere. So how do you, there's no place to build. You look at Cleveland and we have the ability to expand because we can go into our suburbs and we've seen that happen uh, a lot over the last 30 years and expanding what the Cleveland footprint is with all of the, the suburbs and now stretching further south into Akron and Canton um, with home building. But I don't think a politician is going to be willing to put their uh, neck on the line and, and risk reelection because they'll just avoid it. We'll talk about we'll we'll blame the person that, you know, if someone does have an idea, whether it's a great idea or a bad idea, we'll say they'll all jump on like attack ads to go after that person that might be trying to solve a problem, but they're not going to come up with some solution themselves. So I think that it'll be completely avoided in the election. Much politically safer, yeah, than, than creative solutions. Yeah. And, and you know, Rich and, and, and Jody, that's really sad because the last time our country holistically examined our housing policy was 1990. 
Uh, it was called the Cranston-Gonzalez Act, and that's the last time we had a housing bill. Since that time, you had the crash and Fannie and Freddie go down. You now have housing affordability problems. You've had problems with virtually every single program, and people look at them piecemeal, but they don't look at our housing policy as a whole. You would think, and you guys know this better than I do, that the technology advancements alone since 1990 would dictate that we ought to look at our national housing policy. And yet no one has the guts to do it. It's very unfortunate. And I think it's very poor government. I did see really, You can't really blame anyone though, right? It's like, I can't imagine being a politician. It's like, you're under so much scrutiny and, you know, running a, a small mortgage company. Imagine trying to run a state or run a, a national government. And it's like nothing you can say will ever be right, will ever be popular there. You know, it's like people want to criticize when someone wants to make decisions and try to change something as opposed to help them in making in the, making the right solutions for all of us. So. Well, I, John F. Kennedy wrote a book once called Profiles in Courage. I haven't seen too many people running for office that would be candidates for that book in the last few years. And, and that's part of why I'm terrified, because the solutions needed for the, the very complex issues that plague housing are diff, they're going to be require incredible creativity. There's they're going to be difficult and there's going to be negative connotations to them. No matter what we do, if, if it's you incent Jerry's builders to, to build small homes, there will be negatives to that. I don't know off the top of my head what they are, but I'm sure there will be or else they wouldn't have done it. All, they would have done it already. Yeah, disincent uh, investors from buying homes or incent them to sell them. There will be, there will be some negative parts to that as well. So, and and to both of your point, there have not been a lot of profiles and courage politically, and we are in a very divided political climate, which makes it a little nerve wracking. So, we've got about ten minutes left. Uh, a lot of good comments in the chat, and uh, feel free if you have any questions or comments to pump them in there. Uh, get a chance to get them in before the show ends. Uh, Vic, one, I'm going to go to you on here. One ray of light is the emergence of more tax exempt bond programs with below market rates. It'll take strong operational support for lenders to meet the IRS regs, but could be a game changer for those willing to invest in doing it right. Any thoughts on that? I do. I, I think that bond programs are actually a really wonderful thing to offer borrowers. The only issue is in a primarily purchase-driven market where um, top-notch conventional deals are getting turned down to cash deals, it makes it far more difficult to get um, a bond program or a DPA accepted. That's that's kind of the thing that we're that we're up against right now. Um, I, I do think that it's definitely something that everyone can leverage in the future, but there, there's a lot of operational cost and risk associated associated with that as well. Um, and then Rich, there was another question about non-QM and, and how can banks and IMBs be successful with that? Um, my personal take on that, especially from the IMB perspective, is if you are going to offer non-QM to offer it on a broker basis, which is not always popular with your loan officers. But I think this goes to say that us mortgage bankers have really, really short memories. And uh, as soon as the pandemic hit, what happened in the non-QM market not to jump in so quickly just because you know we have volume that's drying up because if we see something happen or you know in inflation doesn't do what we think it's going to do or things get really weird again which we've seen several times over the last couple of years um 
you just got to have in the back of your head um, that risk perspective. So um, one of the things that we've done to help with that is also partnering with some local community banks um, who are open to purchasing kind of one-off products that we um, aren't necessarily comfortable originating ourselves or, you know, don't have the risk appetite for. And I want to add to that because we uh, did a lot of non-QM. So we were, uh, we had a little bit of a stomach ache from the pandemic and the investors uh, backing out on loans that were funded and were sitting on the warehouse line and trying to, you know, beg Wall Street investors um, to buy those loans. So as we started to see the uncertainty in the market arise, we went from delegated non-QM underwriting to non-delegated uh, non-QM underwriting. And even on a non-delegated non-QM underwriting, we got loans all the way to clear to close and ready to close. And then the investors like, we're not buying that. And it's like, wait, like you, you, you did this, like, this is all you. And now, now you are scared of the, um, you're, you're scared of what the investment um, could present to you. So you're going to back out on a deal. And so if anyone wants to get into the non-QM space, I agree. I mean, I still do them non-delegated, but you have to really manage your risk and you do not want to be stuck with a warehouse line full of non-QM deals if if the non-QM investors um, get scared and run for the hills. Yeah. And not to mention, just like, you know, Bob mentioned in the comments in the chat here, it's, it is a slippery slope. You know, we, we have to remember what happened during the financial crisis and making sure that we're not opening credit boxes up too much and we're thinking about that risk and all of that. So I know it's tough, um, but I, I also think that um, you know, we're, we're in for a little bit of a natural correction right now as well. Can I, I want to ask a question, if I could, Rich, about the bond programs. Um, before I came to NHB, I worked for the state housing finance agencies. And uh, at that time, uh, the purchase price limits that were on uh, the mortgage revenue bond program were very restrictive, so restrictive that in, in virtually no markets could you buy a new home. It was targeted toward existing homes for first-time home buyers. Is that still the case? Vic, Jody? I'm not familiar with those restrictions. I mean, from a capital markets perspective, I do know that uh, they they don't necessarily pay a whole lot in SRP and there's limits on what we can charge. So from like a revenue standpoint, they don't always make sense for any, but we offer it as a service to borrowers. Um, but I, I'm not I'm not sure as far as the caps go. Because in, in a normal market, they, they were seen as a very valuable counter-cyclical tool, but we've never faced a supply shortage like this before and construction costs being where they are. It's something I'm going to have. I'll ask my team to look at it. Uh, Jody, coming in the chat said, you know, to Jerry's points earlier about, you know, continued supply chain issues, maybe, you know, challenging the people that think inflation's the worst we've seen paper. I hear a new one. Veterinarians, I heard where there's a shortage of now. And it's like every day, it seems like there's something new that uh, there's a shortage of. And somebody put in the chat paper. Uh, I know you are a very tech forward human and company. And 
very much more paperless than than the mean in our industry. But the comment was along the lines of, if there is a paper shortage, could that finally be the catalyst <laughs> to get to mortgages? To, who, who, I, it's 2022. We still don't have paperless mortgage. I, how is this possible? I know. Um, so every time that there is a, a hurdle that creates, you know, it, it lends towards pushing forward. We saw it in the pandemic. We couldn't all be together. So we push forward on uh, technology. We um, There was a shortage in employees because there were so much refinance business in 2020 and 2021 that pushed us through to hire uh, um, automation. The same can be true if we, like, it'll be all e-closings. I think that that's the one area that we're down to that would require paper. But I laughed when I saw that came through because I was in a new branch that had started onboarding them this week and someone asked for a sticky note. And I went to his um, computer and I was, I went on and I was like, sticky note. And he just looked at me like, what? I was like, you don't need like, sticky notes you have sticky notes on your computer just put a sticky note on your uh put a sticky note on your uh desktops instead of like you just wasted like two minutes looking for a physical sticky note when you could you're sitting at your computer anyway and like then you have to find a pen and who has those um so uh yes i definitely think if there's a paper shortage that will the final piece uh will come together and all, we'll have all of the counties and states accepting e-notes, e-mortgages, all the warehouse banks, investors, and that will catapult us to a fully digital mortgage. All right. Well, I'm full, I'm all in favor of a paper shortage, selfishly. So I'm going to start <laughs> rumors that it's worse than it actually is. So No more paper cuts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, Dottie in the chat uh, regarding the bond program says income and sales price is not a limitation for the TBA programs being offered by the housing finance agencies. But in the TE bond programs, the limits are generally 115% of uh, area median income. So thank you, Dottie, for that uh, feedback. Uh, Jerry, one more question I had for you. Um, you know, like we've been hearing it forever, just the regulatory costs for home builders being the primary impediment to building affordable homes in America. Like any examples of some, you know, what you and your members view as a unnecessary, like, are there regulatory costs that could be rolled back that it just, it makes sense and it could have some impact or is this never going to happen? Any, any uh, DC uh, inside baseball for us? <laughs> Yeah, I, I could, we could spend hours doing that, but then we'd never get those cocktails or maybe we'd have more cocktails. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, there are examples, uh, you know, at the, at the state, at the federal um, and at the local level of uh, regulations uh, that have been put in place basically to stop growth. Um, at the federal level, one of the most abused um, uh, pieces of law in the country's history, I think, is the Clean Water Act, uh, which was passed in order to preserve uh, the beauty and the purity of our nation's uh, rivers, lakes, and streams, but now which is applied to uh, vernal pools. A vernal pool is a pool that appears in the spring after the snow melts, and as the summer comes, it's gone. That is now considered a water, a navigable water of the United States for regulatory purposes. And it's used by people who don't want builders to build. Uh, that's, a, that's a federal one. A local one that I just became familiar with recently is um, the size of cul-de-sacs in a certain town in a certain uh, northwest or northeastern state, rather. Uh, the size of the cul-de-sacs 
have to be as large as they are so that the fire wagons have room to turn around. The town hasn't used fire wagons since the turn of the last century, but they've never undone that regulation. Uh, a, a review of regulations that are not necessary or that are put in place uh, for ulterior motives is something that I think any good government should undertake on a regular basis at all levels, and there's a lot of them. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, these problems are complex, and it's not just federal. It's, you know, especially on the affordable housing front, a lot of local buy-in that we're going to need to get over the hump. And Jody, a, a community in Ohio, Cambridge, Ohio, where you're very familiar with, we're both familiar with, a very popular celebrity. Like, you know, they wanted to put some affordable housing in. He's like, listen, you put it in, I'm taking all my money out of the city. <laughs> like in that, it's an easy example because he's a celebrity. But, you know, it's it's an example of impediments and challenges to to build affordable housing and create affordable housing for first-time home buyers and uh, people that need it. NIMBYism is still a very significant problem. That fix it every place, but in, in Cambridge, Ohio. I right, right. Like, like yeah, country. I don't know Thank you. <laughs> not, not, my, not on my lawn, right? So... <laughs> Well, now we have to find out which celebrity lives in Cambridge, Ohio, Victoria, because you and I, it's an inside Ohio joke, I guess. Just a quick Google. We're not going to, yeah. But uh, <laughs> um, so, well, this was incredibly informative, if a little bit depressing and, uh, you know, ready to have me uh, run to the, the, the bourbon uh, counter in my kitchen. But I uh, want to really, really thank uh, everybody for, for joining me this week. Jerry. Uh, Howard, uh, President and CEO of the National Association of Home Builders. Thank you again for joining us. I uh, really appreciated your insight on uh, the challenges your members are facing and all the best in trying to get that message across to our politicians. Thank you. Jody Hall, President of Nationwide Mortgage Bankers. And uh, I don't know if anybody's done more TMC stints than uh, Jody. We appreciate you greatly. And uh, I love showing off how smart Clevelanders are. So uh, thanks for uh, always answering the bell for us. Appreciate it. I love it. And uh, one of our cap markets go-tos on short notice, I was like, you know, scrambling to put the roster together today. I forgot Rob was going to be out. And the last thing anybody wants is to hear me talk for 45 minutes. So uh, like we need to go to somebody that can give us some perspective on the Fed and rates and uh, Victoria DeLuce of Princeton Mortgage, uh, always there for us as well. Thank you, Vic. Absolutely. Thank you again. And to our attendees, thanks, as always, for wrapping up the week with us. Uh, We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern with The Rundown with Robin Rich. Uh, You can find us on YouTube uh, and on podcasts where the majority of you listen. TMC Connect, Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else that you subscribe to podcasts. And until next week, have a great weekend and uh, next week, everyone. Take care. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to the moms. Absolutely. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.